initiated by iron spikes being driven through flesh into the wood of a cross. Jesus was affixed to that cross, and the purpose and intent was that he would not move from the position or the place into which he was being nailed. And what began with excruciating pain continued. It did not relent. As a matter of fact, it would have only gotten worse as those wounds tore into his hands and his feet would have simply continued to fester and to ooze blood. And it wasn't just those wounds, it was his back that literally had been torn open by the scourging that he had received preceding being nailed to the cross. And he was growing weary. Because by design, what was supposed to happen was his chest would become constricted. He couldn't breathe. And the only way to get a breath was to try to lift his weight off of his outstretched arms, which put pressure on on the wounds in his feet because all he had to push up against was that nail. And when he could stand that no longer... He would relax only for the weight of his body to to be hanging by the nails in his hands. It just got worse and worse. And the whole time, his enemies are railing against him with perverse glee. For having finally gotten the upper hand on this troublesome Nazarene rabbi. They relished the position they were finally in. They spewed their venomous hatred at him. Even those who were convicted with him got caught up in what was going on and they joined in the poisonous chants against Jesus. For half the time that he hung there, for the first three hours, the sun shone. But for the last three hours, that which had originally been called the greater light and had actually come into existence by the one who was now hanging on the cross... refused to do what it had been made to do when it witnessed its creator so maliciously treated. And not just this scene, but even the world was cast into darkness. It's then at the conclusion of this six-hour span that was initiated by the gruesome act of nailing a human being to the cross, that the voice of this bloodied, beaten, and despised man finally cried out. What would you expect to hear? What would have been anticipated was not heard. 
what was heard was not a resignation. It was not a giving up. It was not an admission of defeat. It was no begging for mercy. It was instead an undeniable cry of victory. In his native tongue, the word, and it was a single word that Jesus cried out, tetelestai, translated for us into English by a three-word phrase. It is finished. And no doubt some of those who, who heard that must have thought those have to be the words of a delusional mind gone mad through pain and dashed hopes and dreams. But it wasn't. It was truly this cry of victory. It is finished. That phrase in, in our English language begins with that little two-letter pronoun, it, which is absolutely meaningless without context. What does it refer to? What is he talking about? It is finished. Not I am finished. It is finished. Certainly, Jesus could well have been looking back over the past six hours. But I don't think it's limited to the past six hours. I don't even think it's limited to the past 12 to 14 hours, which take us back to his sham of a trial, to his arrest in the middle of the night in the garden, to the prayers that were uttered there, to the upper room with his disciples. I don't think... His, his view was limited just to that span of time. I don't think his view was limited just back over the past three and a half years as he walked in his public ministry. The hills and the fields of Galilee on occasion coming into the city of Jerusalem. I don't think it was limited to the last 33 years. I think Jesus, at least in part, was looking all the way back. I think he was looking all the way back to another garden, Eden. He was there. He was there when it all came into existence. As a matter of fact, we know the New Testament tells us it was by him and through him that everything that has been made was made. And he watched. He watched as Adam and Eve did what they did in the garden. As they sinned against God. And God confronted them. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you. Speaking to the serpent. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. That's the very first hint that you and I get 
that God already knows exactly what he is going to do as a response to this problem. What an understatement it is to simply call it a problem that has come into God's perfect creation, and that problem is sin. God already knew. Jesus, no doubt, could think about as then sin progressed in this created world that God had made. Now it got so bad, it was so widespread, it was so rampant that he determined he was going to have to do something dramatic, and finally he did. And he literally washed the planet clean with a flood. And after having done so, the father said, I'm not going to do that again. And then he called that man... Abraham. And he told Abraham, and he called Abraham, and he told Abraham many things, among which that through your offspring, through your seed, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Abraham could not in any way know what God was talking about. Jesus knew. He knew exactly what God had in mind. He also had told him that, I'm going to make of you a mighty nation. Well, as you'll recall, forget the nation. We can't even have a child. And so God worked through the barrenness of Sarah. And finally that child came. And then that child received the same promises that his father had received. And there were born Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob received the same promises his father and his grandfather had received. God is going to bless all the peoples of the earth, and it's going to come through this lineage. And when you you go back and you remember the history of this people, these descendants of Abraham, how they were a weak, sinful, rebellious, And yet God continued to work. And he eventually brought that family of Abraham through Joseph to Egypt. And there that family grew and grew and grew and grew until they became so numerous that the Egyptians didn't know what to do with them. And they began that oppression. And they cried out to God in their oppression for their deliverance. And finally God brought along Moses. And it was Moses who led them out through impossible circumstances. He led them to the Red Sea and led them across the Red Sea on dry ground. He led them into the wilderness where there was no food and there was no water. And yet he brought them safely through. They came to Mount Sinai and God entered into a covenant relationship with this people that was all pointing to another covenant that was yet to come. God was working. And it was Moses who said, there's going to arise another among you like unto me. And when he does, you listen to him. God's working on his plan. And finally, after 40 years of wandering in a wilderness 
and an unfaithful generation dying, they come to this land that God intended to give them. And through the leadership of Joshua, they cross over and they conquer that land, the promised land, the land of rest. And they fall again into sin, the time of the judges. And they'll return in faithfulness and they'll fall away again and they'll return and they'll fall away until finally they ask for a king. They end up with several. One of those kings is David. And God makes a promise to David, I'm going to raise up another king out of your lineage and he'll reign on that throne forever. God is working his plan. Well, not all kings were like David. Many of them were actually rather wicked men. And so God would try to bring his people back by sending to them men called prophets. And it was those prophets that would cry out against the sins of the people, threaten and warn against the punishment of God. Those same prophets were the one who were saying, you know, God has something in mind, and God is going to be sending someone. It's New, Peter in the New Testament tells us that those prophets didn't even understand everything that they were prophesying. They wanted to know more about it, but couldn't know. They were looking towards something. But those people, those rebellious, sinful people, until finally God couldn't take it anymore. They had years prior divided the northern kingdom he sent off into captivity using the Assyrians as the, the, the form of punishment against them. But then later even Judah, the southern kingdom, God brought the Babylonians and took them all off into their captivity. And it was from that day forward that there were more of these people, descendants of Abraham, who lived throughout the world than ever again lived back in that homeland. God said, I'm going to take a remnant. It's going to take a small group of these folks, and I'm going to continue to work through them. And he brought them back to the city of Jerusalem, rebuilt the walls, rebuilt the temple. The city was populated again, the countryside again. For about 400 years, heaven was silent. Until one dark night, in the hills outside of Bethlehem, the nighttime sky was illuminated and filled with the voices of a chorus of angels announcing the birth of that one. The one that had been promised all along. Here he, he is here. He is born. And he's in the city. And so Jesus enters into the flow of human history for a while. And when the time comes, he seeks out his forerunner who is there along the Jordan River baptizing, preaching and baptizing, and he comes to John to be baptized of him. And John hesitates. He doesn't want to do it. But Jesus says, 
to fulfill all righteousness, you must do this. And as soon as he's baptized, Jesus goes into the wilderness. And there he encounters Satan. And this is no mistake, it's no happenstance, that at the outset of the ministry of Jesus, Satan confronts the Son of God. And the purpose of that confrontation is for Satan to attempt to derail the very purpose for which Jesus has come. Satan knows it. Jesus knows it. And he resists. He is going to do what the Father has called him to do, not what Satan is tempting him to do. And so Jesus launches his ministry. Three and a half years. Doesn't last long. And the whole time, Jesus is fighting. He's fighting misunderstanding. He is fighting a religious people, God's people, who don't even acknowledge or recognize him. He's having to fight even his own disciples when he begins to tell them, now here's what's going to happen to me when we go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. And I'm going to be tried and I'm going to be persecuted and I'm going to be killed. And you remember what Peter said. <laughs> no, Lord. No, not you. As a matter of fact, Matthew says he begins to chastise Jesus. That's how far off base Peter's thinking is, but Peter's thinking is reflective of the entire nation of people. That's not what the Messiah is going to be and what he's going to do. And yet Jesus knew that's what he was there for. And so on one occasion, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to go on a very high mountain, probably Mount Hermon, north of the Sea of Galilee. And they go up onto this mountain. And remember, Jesus is transfigured before them. But who's standing there with him? Moses and Elijah. And Luke is the one who tells us they're carrying on a conversation about what is getting ready to transpire with Jesus. I believe that's an affirmation. An affirmation for Jesus that you are doing exact, this is exactly how this is all supposed to work, and you're right on target, you're right on line. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You listen to him. A little message there for Peter, James, and John, too, as well as the rest of us. And so finally, Jesus does come to Jerusalem. And exactly what he said was going to happen does happen. And there he is on the cross. Six hours have passed. And he is able to cry out in triumphant victory. It is finished. It's finished. I have done what my father has sent me to do. It's done. Who was Jesus 
talking to when he said that? Who did Jesus intend to hear those words when he made that cry from the cross in all the pain and all of the agony? We already mentioned the fact that there were probably some who who thought this, 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 this man's deranged. He has to be deranged. This is a beaten man. That this is not a, a, a scene of victory that Jesus was claiming it to be. And yet that's exactly what it was. And isn't that so often the case when we're dealing with God that what we think we know and we think we see is not what is being seen at all. That where there was shame, what should have been seen is great honor. And in this cover of darkness, God's the, the blinding light of God's grace was shining through. And hearing the anger and resentment and hatred, the voice of love, was crying out. That's what was happening. And as Jesus made that cry, I believe that the first one he intended to hear his words was God himself. Father, I've done it. I have done what you sent me to accomplish. What is it that you want to hear from God when that day comes, when you stand before the judgment throne? Is it not the words, well done, well done. You did it. I believe Jesus was saying those words for God to hear. I believe Jesus was saying those words, secondly, for the, the spiritual realm to hear. That same realm that is described for us in our spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, the rulers and the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you not think they heard Jesus cry, it is finished? Remember all through that three and a half year ministry as Jesus would cast out demons from people that more often than not those demons would confess the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. We know who you are. You're the Son of God. What do we have to do with you, O Jesus, Son of God? They knew. I just can't help but think that a, a shudder reverberated through the spiritual realms when Jesus cried out in victory from the cross, it is finished. But I also believe that Jesus uttered those words for us. He wants us to hear what he said from the cross from the Jews' perspective, what they were witnessing was that, that, that this pesky pain in the neck was finally eliminated. 
Finally, we've shut him up. From the Romans' perspective, it was nothing but business as usual. Another crucifixion. You know, we might tend to think that crucifixions were pretty rare because we really only know about one of them. But this was something they did all the time. And this was just another one. To his own disciples, what they thought they were witnessing was such a shattering disappointment. We had put so much hope into this man. Go back and read Luke chapter 24 when on the day of the resurrection those two disciples are traveling on the road to Emmaus and Jesus, unknown to them, engages them in conversation. What, man, have you been hiding under a rock? You don't know what's been going on around here for the past three days? We had hoped. And now our hope is gone. So what was it that was going on? And what is it that you and I are supposed to understand? We're supposed to understand, first of all, that on that cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2 and 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. I think humanity has, has failed to take sin seriously. Someone who didn't take or who finally did take sin seriously, was David. And when he finally allowed the full weight of his sin to come to bear on his life, he said, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. David knew the weight of his sin. That's why in Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, as he began those Beatitudes at the outset of that sermon. Blessed, number one, are the poor in spirit. Number two, blessed are they that mourn. Who is it that's mourning? It's the one who understands the weight of their sin. In one of Jesus' parables, he talked about two men who owed a debt. And one of those men owed 10,000 talents. That was the largest numerical value that could be ascribed in the Greek language. It's an impossible number. One of the old British 
commentators in talking about this parable of Jesus says that the value that is discussed here is an amount higher than the annual revenue of the entire British Empire. And you know what that debt is intended to represent, don't you? The debt of sin. And it weighs so heavily because it is impossible, not difficult, not hard, impossible to deal with. And yet there he is on the cross having taken not just my sin, but the sin of the entire world, all of humanity upon himself on that cross. I think that is exactly why in the garden Jesus struggled so mightily. Have you ever noticed this about the gospel accounts of Jesus' time in the garden and his time on the cross? On the cross, the scripture doesn't go into all the detail that even we went into tonight about the physical agony of crucifixion. All it says is that they crucified him. But in the garden, Jesus himself bore witness to how agonizing it was for him. Then, my soul is grieving to the point of death. Why was that so hard? I believe it was so hard for him then because he knew what was going to transpire on the cross. Not the nails, not the lashes on the back, not hanging there for six hours, but bearing the weight of the sin of all humanity. He says, I did it. I bore it all. And as such, as he took the sin of you and I on him on the cross, he died in our place. That's what was supposed to happen to us, not him. Romans 5 and 6, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. The godly for the ungodly. The sinless for the sinful. That death was supposed to be mine. And he took it. Which means then that he received, thirdly, our punishment. As Peter says, 1 Peter 2.25, by his stripes we are healed. Now how does that work? How are we healed by his stripes? Because the stripes he received were the stripes of punishment for the sin that he bore. Not his own sin, but the sins of us. Those are our sins. And that was our punishment. And he took it all for us. We remember that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus is the one who died for sin. He took the punishment that belonged to us 
And in so doing, He loved us to the very end. 1 John 3 and 16. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. It is finished. Do we, do we hear what Jesus is saying? Do we hear him as he tells us that this is God's answer for humanity's greatest need? It is the answer that God had in place even before the worlds were created, first uttered in the Garden of, of Eden before the serpent and Adam and Eve, and that for which God has worked through all those centuries and generations to bring it down to this point, and here it is. This is the answer, despite the weakness and the failing and the rebellion of even those people through whom God had determined to work. God was relentless. He was unfailing. He was faithful. He was steadfast in His love to accomplish what had to be accomplished through His Son. And it's not only that it's the answer for humanity's greatest need. It's the answer for my greatest need. And yours. What, in my opinion, is one of the greatest lines in all of hymnody is the third verse of Horatio Spafford's famous hymn, It Is Well. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin. Not just a little bit of it. Not just one of them. My sin. Not in part, but the whole. My sin is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. God has done for me what I need the very, very most. Ray Overholt also wrote some very memorable words in another hymn that we often sing. To the howling mob he yielded. He did not for mercy cry. The cross of shame he took alone. And when he cried, it is finished. He gave himself to die. Salvation's wondrous plan. 
was done. And God wants nothing more than for you and I to be able to participate in the victory of Jesus Christ. The victory exclaimed, and I don't think this is overstatement. One author penned about these words, John 19.30, of Jesus from the cross, it is finished. The greatest words ever spoken by the greatest man who ever lived. He gives us the victory through his death. It's finished. Have you made that a part of your life? Have you brought yourself to the place before God that that victory is now yours through His Son? Have you done exactly what He has called us to do as we respond in obedience to His gracious offer of salvation and are baptized, as Paul says, into the death of Jesus? That death where He shed His blood, that death where he cried, it is finished. That death, by which stripes you and I are able to be healed. And tonight, if you haven't done that, you can do that. You can respond in precisely the way that we read over and over again in the pages of Scripture that people responded to what God was offering them through his Son. If you need to come tonight in that obedient faith and submit yourself to that immersion, that burial in water, baptism, so Christ's blood can wash your sins away, that can happen tonight. What a glorious thing that would be. If there is perhaps other spiritual need that you have this evening, we, we would love to have the opportunity visit with you, to pray with you, to, to serve in whatever way we can for you. But if you need to come, we want you to do that now while we stand and we sing this song. I hear the Savior 